You are now listening to the smooth, mellifluous sounds of Red's Room Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to episode number 21 of the Red's Room Podcast. I'm your host, Red. And I'm your co-host, Jake. And today we are talking about Ruby Ridge. As always, our references are in the episode description. And shout out to Jim for requesting the topic. If anyone else has any more requests, any topic ideas, we'd love to hear them. Drop a comment. Absolutely. We're always looking for more cool stuff to cover. Fuck yeah, dude. We cover a wide variety of stuff, so reach out to us. We might love it. Yeah, no topic's a bad idea. Even if it's stupid, not legit, we love to cover stuff like that. Absolutely. So, what was Ruby Ridge? In a brief description, Ruby Ridge was the site of an 11-day siege of a cabin occupied by the Weaver family in Boundary County, Idaho, in August 1992. It began on August 21st when deputies of the United States Marshals Service, the USMS, came to arrest Randy Weaver under a bench warrant after his failure to appear on federal firearms charges. So this might be, there's a lot of reading on this one. There's a lot of facts. So we're going to do our best to cover them and try to keep it not so dense. Bear with us here, but I think it is, we do need to do this reading to do this topic justice. Yeah, there's, uh, we tried to condense what we could, but there's, there's a lot of pertinent facts and details about this one. So, mm-hmm. okay, let's get into it. Uh, Randy Weaver, a former Iowa factory worker and U.S. Army soldier, moved with his wife and four children to northern Idaho during the 80s so they could uh, homeschool their children and escape what uh, they saw as a corrupted world. I don't blame them for that. Mm-hmm. Sounds pretty... Uh, like it sounds like they were ahead of their time in the eighties. I was on just that. gonna, I was just gonna say that totally ahead of their times. I think a lot of us kind of think, kind of like that way nowadays. But yeah, I think they, a lot of people could sympathize with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in nineteen seventy eight, Vicky, his wife, was the religious leader of the family. She began to have recurrent dreams of living on a mountaintop and believed that the apocalypse was imminent. After the birth of their son, Samuel, the Weavers began selling their belongings and visited the Amish to learn how to live without electricity. They bought 20 acres of land on Ruby Ridge in Idaho in 1983 and began building a cabin. In 84, uh, Weaver and his neighbor, Terry Kinnison, had a dispute over a $3,000 land deal. Kinnison lost. The lawsuit was ordered to pay him uh, $2,000 in court and damages. Basically, at the end, Kennison got mad, and he wrote letters to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Secret Service, and the county sheriff, in which he alleged that Weaver had threatened to kill Pope John Paul II, President Ronald Reagan, and Idaho Governor John V. Evans. In... 85, the FBI and the Secret Service launched an investigation into allegations that Weaver had made threats against Reagan and other government and law enforcement officials. So this is where everything begins. It all starts over his pissed off neighbor over the land deal. 
And we can kind of infer that it's kind of bullshit. Yeah. He's saying that he's going to assassinate the president. It's like, what the hell, man? Yeah. It's uh, hearsay and it's garbage. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's continue on. So on February 12th and 85, Weaver and his wife were interviewed by two FBI agents, two Secret Service agents, and the Boundary County Sheriff and his chief investigator. Uh, the Secret Service have been told that Weaver was a member of Aryan Nations um, and that he had a large weapons cache at his res- residence. Weaver denied these allegations, and the government filed no charges. On three or four occasions, the Weavers had attended Aryan Nations meetings at Hayden Lake, uh, where there was a compound for government resistors and white supremacist separatists. The investigation noted that Weaver associated with Frank Frank Kumnick, who was known to associate with members of Aryan Nations. Weaver told the investigators that neither he nor Kumnick was a member of the Aryan Nations, but he stated that uh, Kumnick was associated with the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. I got a brief uh, definition of what that group is here. The Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord was a far-right survivalist anti-government militia which advocated Christian identity and was active in the United States during the 70s and early 80s. The CSA, for short, developed from a Baptist congregation, the Zarephit Horeb Community Church, which was founded in 71 in Pontiac, Missouri. Over time, the church evolved into an extremist militant group, and it was re-Christianed the CSA. The group operated a large compound in northern Arkansas, which was known as The Farm. In 85, federal and state law enforcement officials who had been investigating the group for weapons violations and terrorist acts carried out a three-day siege of the compound. Following a peaceful resolution, officers arrested and uh, later convicted the group's top leaders, eventually causing the organization to dissolve. Okay, uh, back to our story. So on February 28th, Randy and uh, Vicki Weaver, this is in 85, filed an affidavit with the county courthouse alleging that their personal enemies were plotting to provoke the FBI into attacking and killing the family. On May 6th, the Weavers sent President Reagan a letter claiming that their enemies may have sent Reagan a threatening letter under a forged signature. No evidence for such a letter surfaced, but in 92, the prosecutor cited the 85 letter as an overt act of the Weaver family conspiracy against the federal government. So this is a letter that their neighbor sent, um, which they never sent, and it was used as evidence against them. It really does seem like they got people that are out to get them. Like, if you're going to get go- the government looking at you, you know, watching over you, saying that you want to kill the president is a good way to do it. But it's kind of fucked up, man. It's amazing that it just took um, that one guy one guy, some letters and everything snowballed from there. Another side note I wanted to throw in that Vicky was having dreams that it was going to go downhill. Is she like, she likes on some Anakin shit. She can like predict the future, but that's very interesting. I think it's just some paranoid, uh, most likely doomsday Armageddon, Mm -hmm. uh, extreme Christian ideas. They already kind of had those thoughts. It seemed like, so it makes sense, but 
it's still cool. <laughs> I think well, it's so, cool when you say it's like Anakin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it it really uh, led the family into moving there. I guess too, trying to uh, they were kind of affiliated with the Aryan Nation. The Aryan Nation. I was watching a PBS documentary about this, and one of the guys in the documentary, Daniel Levitas, he, this is what he explained the Aryan Nation was about. They were a Christian identity theology, which teaches that white Anglo-Saxon Christians are the true descendants of the lost tribes of Israel, and that those that call themselves Jews are not nearly imposters, but are actually children of the devil. Which that's pretty fucked up, and... Another thing he mm-hmm. said was that it also teaches that Afri- African-Americans and other people of color are subhuman. So you can understand why, you know. Right. I always thought that they were the same thing as the KKK. <laughs> you kind of get those vibes with them. Yeah, I, I just thought that they were like the prison version of the KKK. <laughs> the prison version, yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, anyways, uh, let's continue on. Uh with the ATF involvement. The ATF first became aware of Weaver in July 86 when he was introduced to a confidential ATF informant at a meeting at the World Aryan Congress. Weird that he's meeting him there. Uh, so yeah. it seems like he has a little more involvement with the Aryan Nation than he admits. That's what it kind of seems like. But uh, that's speculation. So uh, the informant portrayed himself as a weapons dealer working with motorcycle gangs. Over the next three years, Weaver and the informant met several times. In July of 89, Weaver invited the informant to his home to discuss forming a group to fight the Zionist organized government, referring to the U.S. government. In October of 89, the ATF claimed that Weaver sold the informant two sawed-off shotguns with the overall length of the guns shorter than the limit sent by, set by federal law. In November of 89, Weaver accused the ATF informant of being a spy for the police, and she is totally right. Uh, Weaver later wrote he had been warned by Rico V, who was an informant for the FBI. The ATF's informant handler ordered him to have no further contact with Weaver, and eventually the FBI informant, Rico Valentino, outed the ATF informant to Aryan Nation's security. Long story short, the ATF arrests Weaver for the shotguns uh, by posing as broke-down motorist. Weaver stops to help them, and they arrest him. They book him and tell him his charges, then release him on bail, with his trial set on February 19th, 91. They then change the court date and send Weaver a letter uh, to inform him, but they put an incorrect date on the letter also. Weaver doesn't show up, probably because he had the wrong date. They then issue a bench warrant for his arrest, and the case, the case gets handled handed to the U.S. Marshals Service. So there was a lot of bullshit that just happened in those two paragraphs. Yeah, we got a snitch. We got... We got two informants, mm-hmm. we, one snitching on Weaver, and then one snitching out the other informant. <laughs> Dude, just that is crazy. Yeah, this is like a whole season of a drama show, like right here, summed up. Once again, with government organizations, we see the incompetency. Like that has been right a and mainstay. Them, yeah, and them not working together at all. Do you truly think that they did send him the incorrect date? Do you think that was done on purpose? I guess that's a little mini conspiracy, but it's pretty I don't think up. it was done on cur- purpose. I think we're just, it's just incompetency here. Yeah. 
yep, send him the wrong date. He doesn't show up, and then he gets a warrant. And they somebody even tried to reverse that and say, hey, let's see if he shows up to the correct date first. And then a judge is like, nope, warrant up, warrant holds. <laughs> We're going for him now. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Okay, let's get into the U.S. Marshals Service. The USMS officers made a series of attempts to have Weaver surrender peacefully, but he refused to leave his cabin. I don't know what the attempts were. That's all that I found on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Weaver negotiated with U.S. Marshals Ron Evans, uh, W. Warren Mays, and David Hunt through third parties from March 5th to October 12th of 1991. When Assistant U.S. Attorney Ron um, Howen directed that the negotiations cease. Beginning in February of 91, the USMS developed a threat source profile on Weaver. Agents' failure to uh, integrate new information into that profile was criticized in a 1995 report by a subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee. In summary, they exaggerated things to make Weaver sound like a huge threat and they didn't incorporate um, anything that they learned that would make him not a threat into that profile. They seem very close-minded on Randy. Yeah, they're very polarized in their view on him, and they want to paint him as a terrorist threat. And they basically only add facts that uh, support that, and they ignore facts that uh, would be counter to that. I guess to be fair to their side, he was manipulating firearms sawing off shotgun barrels but it's like that one thing in the court mess up it's like we we gotta have them now is there a bigger fish to fry i would say so but who they, cares they got it in their head that they they need this guy they need to bring him down yeah he's not gonna take down the government with two sawed off shotguns <laughs> yeah. and he already sold him to an informant they got him mm-hmm. like slap him with a fine and move on anyways uh that's at least how we see it. That's what makes the most sense to me. To me, too. Uh, there's better things to do. There's real threats out there. And on, on top of that, man, sawed-off shotguns are dope. Like- and the dude just wants to live in a cabin by himself. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. He did say – he did talk to that informant about creating a group to overthrow the Zionist government. So I guess he – there, there is some justification there. There is a few weird things. And then we got the other bullshit of his friend saying he right. had a hit on the president. It's just like... Yeah, that was bullshit. Mm-hmm. Him, him saying he wants to form a group, though, uh, that is a threat. But whether he ever acts on that, I don't know that he ever would have acted on that. You mm-hmm. know, that could have just been like having some beers, you know, bullshitting yeah. with the guy on the side. Um I could totally see it that way. Yeah, it's it's hard to know without being there what the tone was. I don't know that he was like going on a full cocaine yeah. Hitler rant. Like just, you know, I, I just don't see it that way. Context is definitely needed here, and we unfortunately just don't have it. It's not much not much else we can say about it. It's pretty effed up, but what else yeah. are you gonna do? Right. Okay, let's talk about one incident that really helped kick things off. Um, the Rivera helicopter incident. Mm -hmm. So media reports that Weaver had fired on the Rivera media helicopter on April 18th, 92, um, because they flew over his property. This became part of the justification later cited by U.S. Marshal Wayne Duke Smith and FBI Commander Richard Rogers in drawing up 
the Ruby Ridge Rules of Engagement on August 21st and 2nd of 92. When interviewed by the FBI, the helicopter pilot, Richard Weiss, said that Weaver had not fired at his helicopter. The report uh, of the RRTF said when the indictment of Weaver was presented to the grand jury, the prosecution had evidence that no shots had been fired at the helicopter. I mean, the pilot literally said that he didn't fire at it. Yeah, seems like they want a false flag here. Total trumped up charges here. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, now let's get into the big part of the first big part of the story, the encounter near his cabin. Mm -hmm. It seems like he's getting really fed up at this point, understandably so. Who, Weaver? Mm -hmm. Yeah, him and like the agents seem to be getting really anxious to just like, they just want to take this guy out. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, let's talk about this. I'm sure you'll have more to say on this encounter. So let I'll sum it up and then, you know, pipe in with whatever you got to add. Okay. Um, On August 21st of 92, six marshals were sent to scout the area to determine suitable places away from the cabin to apprehend and arrest Weaver. The marshals, dressed in military camouflage, were equipped with night vision goggles and M16 rifles. One of the marshals, named Roderick, threw two rocks at the Weaver cabin to test the reaction of the Weaver's dogs. And it did indeed provoke them. A few moments later, Samuel Weaver, then 14 years old, and his friend Kevin Harris emerged with their dog, Stryker. When they got close to Roderick, uh, he shouted for them to stop or back off and that he was a U.S. Marshal. A moment later, Samuel and his dog emerged from the woods and Roderick shot and killed the dog. Samuel uh, shouted, you killed my dog, you son of a bitch, fired back, um, and a gunfight ensued. Uh, Harris, uh, Samuel's friend, shot and killed one of the marshals. Uh, Samuel attempted to retreat up a hill, and he was shot in the back and killed by the marshals. Pretty fucked up. Yeah, that was all unnecessary. And, I mean, the kid comes out of the woods, and some dudes in camo just shout, stop, I'm a U.S. marshal, and kill your dog. Of course you're going to shoot at him. You mm-hmm. don't You don't know that they're a U.S. They, he could he did not have to kill his dog. No, I'm, yeah. I'm on their side on Fuck this. Fuck these guys. This, this is America. We love our animals here, man. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't go John Wick on a dude? <laughs> yeah, dude, this is John Wick 1 right here. Yeah. Or 2, yeah. Oh, yeah, this is John Wick. This is the plot of John Wick. It also seems like too after this there's just two completely sides of this two completely different sides of the story. One mm-hmm. believing that these quote-unquote white separatists were occupying this land and you know, doing illegal things. And the other, the Weaver side is we were just protecting our land. Like I kind of want to side more with the Weavers here. And then we also have a a marshal getting shot and we have a a kid getting shot. It's just, it's all fucked up, man. Yeah. It's, it's really messed up. And I think it is, was completely unnecessary. If things haven't escalated already, now we are fully escalated. We have two dead people, a dead dog. Like now we really get to go time. This is when the story really gets going. Yep. And I want to add to it, it all started from trumped up charges or uh, allegations by his neighbor, mm-hmm. helicopter incident that never happened. And selling two sawed-off shotguns. That's that is it. Mm-hmm. Now his son and his his dog and his son are dead. Mm-hmm. And a dead marshal. And a marshal's dead. Uh, totally unnecessary. All right, let's get into the big siege now. Okay, 
So, in the aftermath of the gunfight on August 12th at 11.20, a DUSM hunt requested immediate support from Idaho law enforcement, and he also alerted the FBI by notifying it that a marshal had been killed. Following Hunt's phone call, the Marshal Service Crisis Center was activated under the direction of Duke Smith, Associate Director for Operations. The Marshal Service uh, Special Operations Group was alerted to deploy. In response to the USMS call, the Boundary County Sheriff's Office mobilized. Also in response to their request, Idaho Governor Cecil Andrus declared a state of emergency in Boundary County allowing use of the Idaho National Guard Armory at Bonders Ferry and after an initial delay uh, to use National Guard armored personnel carriers. Soon thereafter, the Idaho State Police arrived at the scene. FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. responded by sending the hostage rescue team from Quantico to Idaho. Special agent in charge Eugene Glenn of the Salt Lake City FBI office was appointed site command with responsibility for all active individuals from the FBI, ATF, and the USMS. A standoff ensued for 11 days as several hundred federal agents surrounded the house and negotiations for a surrender were attempted. On August 22nd, the second day of the siege, between 2 and 3.30 p.m., the FBI sniper-slash-observer teams were briefed and deployed to the cabin on foot. Before the negotiations arrived at the cabin, FBI sniper Lon Harushi from a position over 200 yards north above the Weaver cabin, shot and wounded Randy Weaver in the back with a bullet exiting his right armpit while he was lifting um, a latch on his shed to visit the body of his dead son. Um, As Weaver, his 16-year-old daughter Sarah and Harris ran back towards the cabin, a second bullet was fired, wounding Harris in the chest. This bullet killed Vicki Weaver, Randy's wife, who was standing behind the door of the cabin um, as Harris was entering. Vicky was holding their 10-month-old baby, uh, Elishaba. Elishaba? We'll go with that. Elishaba. Uh, so, yeah, a lot happened right there. Weaver gets shot. They run back. Harris gets shot. The same bullet goes in his back and out his chest, I'm assuming, and then through the door and kills the wife while she's holding their baby. As far as I know, too, they didn't know they killed Vicky at this point. They had no idea. Yeah, because she was behind the door. So, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So uh, the FBI's HQ and site commanders in Idaho both reevaluated the situation based on information about what had happened, uh, which they were receiving from U.S. Marshals Hunt, Cooper, and Roderick. Uh, Oh, that was about the incident before. Um, On August 23rd, repeated attempts to negotiate with Weaver via a bullhorn failed. There was no response from the cabin. On about Monday, August 24th, the fourth day of the siege, FBI Deputy Assistant Director Danny Coulson, who did not know that Vicki Weaver had been killed, wrote a memo with the following content. Quote, Something to consider. One, charge against Weaver is bullshit. Two, no one saw Weaver do any shooting. Three, Vicky has no charges against her. Four, 
Weaver's defense, he ran down the hill to see what his dog was barking at. Some guys in camouflage shot his dog, started shooting at him, killed his son. Harris did the shooting. He is a he is in pretty strong legal position. End quote. He's he's totally right. Uh uh, I totally agree with every his assessment there of the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're referencing Vicky in there, and she's she's, and she's passed away. She's dead, and they don't even know. Mm-hmm. It It's crazy to think about. And once again, the incompetency, they're throwing shots down at this cabin. What did you say? There was like over 100? There was like hundreds? I think there was 200. 200? Mm-hmm. I either said 200 or a few hundred. Mm-hmm. But... It's like how many resources and how many people do you need to put in to just handle this one cab and just a few people? And once again, with the incompetent, the competency, there's there's children in here, man. She got shot and killed, and she was holding the the yeah. baby. Like this could have been even worse than it already is. Well, they already killed his son and his wife. Mm-hmm. You know, if he was any bit conspiratorial about the government. I mean, I don't blame them to be fully like, you know, screw the government. Yeah, fuck you guys. They are out to murder us, mm-hmm. you know? That's what it's kind of seeming like. It, that's really what it is. Yeah, it's it's insane. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to continue on. So, the standoff was ultimately resolved by civilian negotiators, including Bo Gritz, to whom Weaver agreed to speak. I think believe that's his neighbor. Uh, through Gritz's uh, mediation... Harris, who had earlier urged Weaver to end his suffering, surrendered on August 30th. Um, He was removed via stretcher, and then he was flown by Air Force Medical uh, Evacuation Helicopter to Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane. Weaver allowed the removal of his wife's body, which Gritz oversaw. In the PBS documentary that I watched, they Mm kind of described it as that the FBI really did need a middleman here, and Gritz did fit the bill i did a little googling on him and he Mm -hmm. was a he was a u.s army special forces officer who he served back in vietnam and he really came in clutch here seems like he really persuaded randy to give up his wounded i guess harris he was the kid's friend and get rid of get his wife's body out of there which was probably really hard for him to do yeah i i can see why they need him at this point he was I don't blame him for being totally unwilling to talk to him or even trust him. We'll get a little more into him, but in my opinion, he's like the MVP of this case. Like, yeah, he really he's came the one in clutch. Who, who helped uh, keep it from getting even worse. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, so the FBI commander gave uh, Gritz a deadline to get the remaining Weavers to surrender. And if they did not surrender on the day of the deadline, he said he would resolve the standoff by launching a tactical assault. Weaver and his daughters surrendered the next day. Both Harris and Weaver were arrested. Uh, oh, did I read that? Nope, I didn't read that. Okay, sorry, sounded similar. Uh, anyways, uh, Harris was in a serious condition at Sacred Heart, uh, but the U.S. Marshals did not allow his parents to see him or talk by telephone until Monday evening after a federal court order was issued. That's pretty messed up. Mm-hmm. I think he was what like, the fuck, he man? had to be about 14 too. I didn't get his age, but... Um, and he, and he was shot. They didn't even let his parents see him until they got a court order. Mm-hmm. What a uh, beast for surviving, too. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Weaver's daughters were released to the custody of relatives. Federal uh, officials considered charging Sarah, who was 16, as an adult. I don't know what they would be charging her for, though. Yeah, what the fuck, man? Um, 
Weaver was transferred by military helicopter to the airport at Standpoint, and from there he was flown uh, by USMS jet to Boise. There he was given a brief medical examination at St. Luke's Medical Center. He was held at the Ada County Jail and arranged in federal court uh, the following day, Tuesday, September 1st. They were like rushing to get him to court. Mm -hmm. Okay, now court. Weaver was ultimately acquitted of all the charges except the charge which he incurred after he missed his original court date and the charge of violating his bail conditions, for which he was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment and fined $10,000 in October. Credited with time served and good behavior, Weaver served less than 16 months and he was released from the Canyon County Jail in Caldwell in mid-December. And I think even that is bullshit because he wasn't even Mm -hmm. given the correct date to show up. I think that kind of goes with like the age old saying, the government's going to get you on something. They they really fucked this one up. They had to get him on something. They had to charge him with something. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. Um, Harris was defended by attorney David Nevin, and he was acquitted of all the charges. As he should. He should be, yep. After a lawsuit, Weaver was awarded $3.1 million for the wrongful death of his wife and son. And some of that was to the daughters, too. And good for him. That will never replace his son and his wife uh, that did not need to die. And honestly, you know, I would love $3 million as much as the other person, but I don't even really think Randy cared that much about money. Like they were living out in a cabin, no plumbing, just living off the land. And I guess he can build a nice dope cabin, but his family will never, n- never be around again. Agreed. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1997, Boundary County prosecutor Dennis Woodbury indicted FBI sniper uh, Lon Hurushi for manslaughter on state charges. Judge Lodge quickly dismissed the case on grounds of sovereign immunity. Oh, uh, of course, right. So the sniper that killed his wife got nothing. It makes no sense, too. She was holding a kid, man. Like, Well, he didn't know he was shot her, but, but he still shot the kid and it, shot Weaver. Regardless, like, regardless. He didn't need to shoot anyone. Regardless, I feel like that even makes it worse. He took the shot. They did, He didn't even fully know what he was shooting at and took the shot anyway. Was he told to shoot on sight? That... I was just going to get to that. I think that's one of the one few things is maybe, like you just said, he could have been told to shoot. And I don't know if we'll ever know that information. It's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, not to defend them, but to defend him personally, he could he just showed up on the scene and they're like a marshal's dead. Shoot him on sight. You know, he's just doing his job. But I mean, the people in charge are the ones, you know, and then um, the the one U.S. Marshal Roderick, who shot the dog, mm-hmm. uh, and sh- you know his group that shot and killed Samuel. Why didn't they face any charges? Especially him. I mean, I don't want to put him slow, uh, solely responsible, but he him was sh- the start. Of exactly. That. He fired the first shot. Marshall's dead. Kid's dead. It's like I really, I do appreciate you playing both sides though, because it is important. We don't, we weren't there. Yeah, we so, want to be fair to everyone mm-hmm. here. Maybe the sniper was innocent. Who knows? Who knows? But. Yeah, it still seems like somebody should have went to jail for this. Are you telling me our government makes mistakes? Uh, (laughs) Never to the CIA listening. I love them. The FBI in this scenario. Uh, Anyway, so uh, I got one last thing here. Uh, In 97, Michael 
Cahoe of the chief of FBI's violent crime section pled guilty to obstruction of justice for destroying a report which was critical of the agent's role at Ruby Ridge. He was sentenced to 18 months and a $4,000 fine. So that's the only one who got in trouble that I could find. I, that's all I found, too, on the Washington Post. It said that he was trying to order an aide to wipe out all tracers, traces of the report and then lying about two sets of investigators. So He was trying to do what they did to the MK Ultra data mm-hmm. and just burn it all. I felt like... Even though they it, they did get it. someone like they, I feel like they only got him because it was so obvious that he was doing some fucked up shit. Yeah, and they probably were like, uh, "We got to charge someone with something." Someone's got to get in trouble. Here, just go to jail for like you know a year, a little fine. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. It's it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. In the uh, PBS documentary I watched, I got a couple quotes here from the daughter Sarah Weaver. Mm -hmm. She did an an interview on there, and I'll start with the first one here. I do know there is a lot of remorse, and I do know the FBI uses what happened to my family as a training tool, as what not to do, and that is hugely gratifying to me. So that is maybe, that is one thing, that one good, semi-good thing that came out of this is hopefully there was some changes that were made. I don't know if there was, but I'd like to think so. I sure hope so. I, I really do, man. It's amazing, though, how just having a few people in the wrong position, you know, high up in these, uh, you know, like in the uh, ATF and FBI. FBI, If you got the wrong person in charge, everything goes Mm -hmm. to shit, you know? That is like in anything in life, bad management fucks everything up. And, and, uh, you know, Roderick, I don't know his exact position there but one person making the wrong move Mm -hmm. you know i i also want to say like we we appreciate these 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 groups too we we like having you know the atf and the the uh you know the marshals and the fbi but to what there's a lot of good things they do Mm -hmm. and we're not 100 percent bashing them but just in this case this is this was really they fumbled the bag this is really bad america innocent americans died I guess I'll go into one more quote here from Sarah. It starts off with, but the same way they stereotyped my dad and blew him up in this thing that he wasn't, I think a lot of people uh, do that with our government as well. And when you operate out of misinformation or fear, things can go wrong. And I think that is a great way to put it is Mm -hmm. this case really does seem like it was operated out of a lot of misinformation and almost fear mongering in a way, making him... Randy seemed like an Aryan Nation member or a guy who's sawing off making illegal guns. It's like, come on, man. Right. And the misinformation of his friend who s- said he was going to kill the president. It's like, come on, man. But Agreed. Agreed. Fear and just, yeah. You got anything else, man? I just, uh, you know, it's just... These type of things just, I guess, make me sad. Mm-hmm. This uh, is just more of a sad one. There's no sugarcoat in it. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. Like I said, it's a heavy one. Mm-hmm. People died, and you know, I don't, uh, I don't agree with um, all of Randy's ideas. I don't agree with his association with the Aryan Nation. However you know big that extent was uh the fact that he had sawed off shotguns i really don't give a shit Mm -hmm. i really don't care at all uh he was an american ex-army if he wanted to have some sawed off shotguns i don't care 
think we have the right to bear arms and they make a lot of arbitrary laws around what you can and cannot have that I think are just unnecessary. I think this was, uh, aside from being tragic, it was a huge waste of our tax dollars. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, having, I don't know how much it costed in wages of having all those people there, and then all the court f- costs, and then the payouts at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a lot of money wasted and uh, a lot of grief that uh, uh, 100% unnecessary. They straight up just ruined an American family. Who knew yeah. what potential that, that kid had, Sam? Yeah, and they really ruined their image to the American people. There was a lot of protests mm-hmm. over this. There was. Uh, a lot of people remember and aren't going to forget this. So um, moving forward, I guess all they can do is the government, uh, like she said, uh, that was the daughter, right? Mm-hmm. About uh, She said she she is appreciates that they use it as a training tool. And I guess mm-hmm. um, that's the best thing that they can do moving forward. And uh, I like that too. I let's uh, let's learn from this so that it doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. I hope y'all had a great time <laughs> listening yeah. to this one. Yeah, I hope you had a great time <laughs> listening to this tragedy. <laughs> yeah, but um, I think it's an important story to know. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, until next time. Uh, this is Red. This is Jake. Thanks for listening. See you.